0: Well, hello. Good to see you guys. I'm glad you're here, and I hope you had an awesome uh, spring break. I don't know about you. Maybe, I don't know, when I got past college, I think spring break meant nothing anymore, and that was sad. Um, but maybe that meant something for you this week. I don't know. Maybe you're a stay-at-home parent, and next week is spring break for you. I'm not really sure, but um, I really hope you enjoyed some of the weather and had a good good week. Um, together today, we're going to open up our Bibles to Luke chapter 22. If you would do that, Uh, Luke chapter 22, uh, we're looking at Jesus' final hours before His cross uh, in this season of Lent leading up to Easter and Good Friday, and today uh, we see the sort of betrayal and rejection and utter loneliness that Jesus experienced. Uh, I don't know if you've watched any of the episodes or are familiar at all with that show alone I think it's a History Channel show. I don't know, maybe you can stream it somewhere else these days. It's a it's a show where they, it's a contestant show. They basically drop you off in the middle of nowhere in the forest, and you win if you were the last person that survives. People don't die. They just kind of throw in the towel, right? And uh, basically, if you can stay out there the longest and survive, you win a lot of money. And uh, people consistently who've competed in this show testify that the most difficult part about the experience of surviving in the wild by themselves is not so much the finding of the food, which that seems like an important thing, or building a shelter, which is kind of a big deal, or even getting killed by a wild animal, right, which would be at the top of my list of things that I'm concerned about, unless Ian's camping with me or something, you know. Uh, but, but most people would say that the hardest part of the experience is the isolation. It's the feeling alone. One of the winners, Zachary Fowler, he spent 87 days in Patagonia all by himself. He won $500,000 for this. And he said that basically the whole experience was so hard, and he was so thankful that he had this camera to talk to, into every day. He said, if you've ever seen the movie Cast Away with Tom Hanks, that camera was like my volleyball Wilson. And one day the batteries died, and he had to wait a few hours for those batteries to, to come in from a different site. And he said, I felt so lonely he said for the most part I survived with relative ease being able to discipline my mind and know that I had a hope of a better future for my family if I won but around 4 p.m. every day when I would ordinarily be home with my family it was tough nights were definitely the hardest see the whole struggle of the show it's ironic it's not so much the wild it's the loneliness that's why it's called alone And I think we all resonate with that fear. Many of us fear that very thing, ending up alone. I mean, if you just even research what are the top, deepest human fears, and we're not talking about the low-hanging fruit of heights and snakes and stuff like that, but real deep human fears at the top of that list is loneliness. It's being alone. It's it's tied to that rejection. And so today, when we look at this passage and we see Jesus, we see him experiencing loneliness, And knowing that the loneliness he's experiencing by the hand of his own disciples and the people that surround him is just a shadow of the ultimate loneliness that he's going to experience when he hangs on the cross in the cup that we looked at last week, which he said, if there's any other way for this cup to pass from me, when he drinks that cup of God's righteous anger against sin, and he experiences the forsakenness from his father. All that other loneliness is just a shadow of that ultimate loneliness and so I, I hope today that these two scenes that we're going to look at we're going to see the scene of Judas and his betrayal. We're going to see the scene of Peter and his denial, right We're in a garden. you know we're out in a courtyard. But I hope as we look at these two scenes that we can be led to encounter two ways, I think, that you and I are tempted to desert Jesus in our own lives. And I hope in the end, you and I will see the beauty of the Gospel and how it holds out this promise for us that because Jesus went through this rejection, the promise of the Gospel is that you and I know that we will never be abandoned by God. Right, so let's look first at this betrayal of Judas, and it's here that I want us to look at the temptation that we face in exchanging Jesus for the world. The second encounter with Peter is this denial of Peter, and I want us to see the temptation we have to distance ourselves from Jesus out of self-preservation in our lives. So let's look first at the betrayal of Judas and this temptation that we often face in wanting to exchange Jesus for this world. Verse 47, while Jesus was still speaking, he was just telling them in verse 46, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So he's warning them, pray, don't enter into temptation. He's warned them this twice. While he's saying that, there came a crowd. And a man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you do not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. So here we are. Jesus is speaking about them not entering into temptation and praying against that. And there comes this crowd. This crowd is described in verse 52 for you. It's made up of chief priests, officers of the temple, and elders. So this is not a random crowd. This is an important crowd. This is a powerful crowd. And look who's leading them. Oh, it's one of the 12. Jesus said this was going to happen. It's Judas, one of the inner circle, and he draws near to kiss Jesus. Now, we don't greet each other this way. If we did, someone greeted you with a kiss, you'd think they're French or something, right? That's maybe our only category for this. But a kiss in this culture was a sign of special affection for somebody. It was a kiss that was relegated basically to uh, a family member or a very close friend or maybe a disciple in honoring uh, their their teacher. And so here you have Judas kissing Jesus, this special affection, this, this sign of intimate relationship. And as he's doing this, it's like he has this metaphorical dagger behind his back that he's just sticking into Jesus. I mean, how twisted is this? I think we should be careful to Um, not succumb just to the simple thinking that Judas is doing this so that he can identify for the crowd who Jesus is. I mean, everybody knows who Jesus is. This is the crowd that wants to get rid of Jesus. Jesus is famous in their eyes, right? They've been waiting for this moment to finally get their hands on him and arrest him. Do you really think they don't know, ah, which one is he in this crowd? Not at all. This kiss is twisting and warping this act of closeness in a relationship With betrayal. I mean, just think, I mean, is is Judas thinking that he's going to show up here? Give Jesus a kiss, basically, almost to try to like throw the scent off from the other disciples or Jesus himself. Like I was just late to the prayer meeting here on the mountain and, and, oh, who are these people behind me? Maybe the other 11 are like, oh, Judas has been gone for a while, but oh, here he is. Oh, I guess they're, they're good. He's kissing Jesus. You know, we don't really know what's going on here entirely, but we know that Jesus is not fooled by what Judas is doing. He sees right through it, and you can see that in verse 48. He says, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Man, and, and the disciples, the other 11, they, they kind of see what's going on here. And so in verse 49 and following, they basically ask Jesus, is this what the swords are for? I remember in verse 38, when they said, Lord, here are two swords, he goes, that is enough. You know, they're like, oh, is this what the swords are for? And before Jesus can even answer the question, we know from a different account of the Gospels that Peter picks up a sword and swings it. Apparently, he's not a soldier. He doesn't have a very good aim, but it just at least cuts off the guy's ear. And Jesus stops this whole thing. Verse 51, what does he say? No more. This is is not the revolution I'm bringing in. Don't resist, this is the way right? This is the plan. He's been waiting for it. Uh, This arrest is basically signaling that the cup he was just praying about is going to be drank. But look at what Jesus does. It's beautiful. What a contrast of kingdoms here. He picks up the ear, and the last recorded miracle in Jesus' earthly ministry by Luke is him healing the ear of his own enemy, that's come to arrest him. What a gracious Savior. And then he wants to shed light on what's really going on. He sheds light on their darkness. If you notice this in verses 52 to 53, he basically, he has the floor, so to speak, and he says to them, I've been open and in the light. I've been down in the temple every single day and you haven't arrested me then. You've chosen the night. Outside of the city, and you come armed like I'm some robber or something. What's he driving at? Well, verse 53, he's completely casting light on what's going on here. And there's more that meets the eye. He says, This is your hour and the power of darkness. Jesus explains what's happening. He says, All of this that's coming about is from the schemes and plans of the power of darkness. It's it's real evil behind these actions. Satan himself. Is behind these actions. and I think this is really important for us to see and to take note of even in our day and age, especially when we look at actions like this and just think these were just mere human actions. There's a lot more going on than meets the eye, and this is carried on throughout the New Testament. One example is from Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul writes to the church there. He's saying, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I mean, it's, it's really quite a thought, isn't it? To think that a human being, maybe even you and me at some point or another in our lives, we could be acting out of our own will, but really the will that's being played out is the power of darkness. I mean, do you see, Jesus' death was not just a human tragedy. This is not just some historical event that uh, when you see it rightly, you look back on, you're like, yeah, it's just a bunch of people were having a power struggle and they wanted to get rid of Jesus. No, Jesus casts light on it saying cosmic evil powers are at the center of this arrest. I know it. And he calls it out. Let's be honest, this is challenging for us as Westerners because everything that we evaluate and assess It's all based upon logic, reasoning, science, equations, right? Just the the real flesh and blood, the, the psychology behind our actions. But here, once again, Jesus is saying there's real evil behind this act and behind many of our actions, We have to have a category for this. And if we don't, we can disconnect ourselves, which I think we're tempted to do with the character of Judas himself, and to act like he's completely unlike us. We might look at the actions of Judas and go, well, I would never do this. And maybe you wouldn't, right? We'll never know. But we're all made of the same stuff that Judas is made of. we're not different than he is. I mean, maybe you've walked with Jesus for a while. Maybe not doing the exact same things that Judas did, but you, you walk with Jesus for a while. And as you've walked with Jesus, you've grown really disenchanted with his teaching or his ways. They've begun to rub up against different ideas in the crowd or the culture around you. And you become disenchanted with what he's taught us. Or you become disenchanted with the kingdom he's bringing in. And you at one point thought, that sounds great. But then as you move along in your life, you begin to think, well, I want this thing to be more materialized in the here and now. The kingdom he's ushering in, I'm becoming a little more disenchanted with it. And so we can think that there's something else in this world as we've received Jesus at some point. And as we followed him, we begin to part ways with him as we begin to look at other things in this world saying, I would rather make this kind of exchange. I mean, there's a popular youth group game. I don't know if you've ever played this game. I actually haven't played this game before, but I've seen the game. It's a game where you basically get a bunch of youth together, because adults, we would think we're too cool for this, but we'd actually have a lot of fun, right? You get all these youth together. You break them up into teams. You give them something really small, like a penny. You send them off to different houses, and they knock on the door of somebody's house they hopefully know. You know, and they say, hey, we're playing this game. I need to exchange this penny for something more valuable, something bigger, something more expensive. So basically, this is a great thing if you're early on in the game and you're at your own house because you can treat this like goodwill, right? You're like, I don't want this thing anymore. You could take it, right? And then they take the new thing that they just exchanged the penny for. They go to the next house, and you keep exchanging things. And then the game ends. And you all come back together, and whoever has the most expensive, uh, the most, the largest gift, you win. Right, some maybe end up with a couch or something like that. It's pretty amazing, right? If you've ever seen this game played out before. But all you're doing is you're basically doing this evaluation. Like, this is what I have. Would you give me something else in exchange? And we're evaluating and we're exchanging goods. I did this with like baseball cards as a kid, right? Go, I have this guy, you have that guy. We both value the other one more. Let's let's trade cards. Or maybe you did this with uh, you do this in relationships with friends, or a romantic relationship with somebody. And so the the idea goes, like, I have this friend, I have this relationship with someone, it's going great, but then someone else comes along you're like, "Ah, I kind of have a lot more in common with them, or, man, they maybe add more to my life, so I'm going to move away from this friend, I'm going to become friends with this person. Or you're in a marriage or a dating relationship and you go, things are going all right, but, you know, they've lately been a little bit more on the downslope, and so I'm seeing this other person and maybe I'll make this exchange for them, maybe they'll be, be better off with this person. We make these exchanges all the time with, with our house, with, with our jobs and that kind of thing. We're, we're evaluating and exchanging things all the time based upon that value. We're thinking, I see this value in this thing, but I, if I give this up, I can, I can have that. Right? we do this? And so the idea then goes, what am I tempted to exchange Jesus for if, if it came across my plate? Would I exchange Jesus? in this world for maybe a little bit more comfort? Would I exchange Jesus in this world for my perceived freedom to do what I want? These exchanges happen in very little ways, and they can happen in huge, big, final ways. And they can seem innocent and not much on the surface, but a text like this reminds us that there is real, spiritual, there's a dark transaction that's taking place when we make exchanges that Jesus is a part of. And that's not what a Christian is. See, I think the secret joy in this life comes from realizing that Jesus really is the thing that you would never exchange, if I could say it that way. We sing that song, right? That, that, that modern, simple hymn, Give Me Jesus, saying, when in the morning when I rise, when I am alone, when I come to die, give me Jesus. The chorus sings, you can have all this world, give me Jesus. I'll make that exchange. See, that's the heart of a Christian. That's not the heart of Judas. Right? Jesus has exchanged a twisted kiss with some money in his pocket for the king of the Universe. We secondly see the denial of Peter and this temptation that we face to distance ourselves from Jesus for the sake of self-preservation. We see this in verse 54. They seized Jesus. They led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following him at a distance. And we don't know why he's following him at a distance. It could be he's curious. It could be because he's afraid. It might be because it's all the courage he has. You know, maybe his pride's on the line. He was just boasting about how he'd never leave Jesus. He'd be with him to the end. And so here we see him demonstrate that courage. We just saw him demonstrate it with the sword. right? So I think it's easy to be hard on Peter, but we see him here at least following. And then verse 55, when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him, as he sat in the light and looked closely at him, said, this man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him, said, You are also one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. So this trial is beginning to take place. At the high priest's house, we imagine it's a chilly spring night, so there's a fire In the courtyard, everyone's gathered around. There's a servant girl, low, 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 class society. And she looks closely at Peter, we're told. Literally, it means she's staring at Peter, doing the thing you're not supposed to do, right? And she says, everyone, this guy was with him. Peter, woman, I don't know him. I know you're familiar with this probably. I imagine most of you are. Think about that. I don't know him. Peter had made big promises. He said to Jesus, I will go to prison. I will even go to death. He made big, bold promises in private and in moments of great ease and security. But publicly, he denies even knowing Jesus. Was his life being threatened This is just a servant girl, right? A little later, we're told, verse 58, another person. So time has passed. Another person sees him. He's had time to process that a little bit, right? You also are one of them. Man, I am not. So the pressure is increasing. Peter's beginning to crumble. Then we're told another hour later, we see that they know he's a Galilean, verse 59. That's what tips them off. They, most people believe that Galileans had a, a very different accent than if you're from Jerusalem, right? So, so probably his accent tips them off like he's a Galilean. Right? Just like if someone from Mississippi were here and they said, you know, hey, y'all, you know, and you'd be like, you're not from around these parts, right? Like we go like, oh, yeah, we can tell by your accent. It's the same thing here. But Peter a third time says in his accent, man, I, I do not know. What you're talking about. And immediately, and this is the second time we've had this while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And then some of the weightiest words I propose to you in the Bible, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. That's all he had to do, right? Jesus didn't say a word, just a look. See, Peter, Jesus was out of Peter's sight. All that he could see, right, was the servant girl. These nameless other people. And himself, the self-preservation, right? That's all he had in view, but, but Peter was in Jesus' view the entire time. And it's that last time, when he hears the crow, right, that he turns and he realizes, Jesus has his eyes on me. Imagine the scene. He denies. He even knows Jesus. He looks at Jesus. Jesus is looking right at him. Could you imagine the weight of the moment for Peter? I don't even know him. What does he do? Verse 61, it says what Peter remembered. He remembered. Look back in verse 33 of the same chapter. Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you even know me. So so what does Peter do once he locks eyes with Jesus and he remembers? What does it say he does? He goes out and he weeps. And Luke wants you to know it was an ugly cry, right? It was bitter weeping. So here we have previously strong, self-assured, proud, self-sufficient Peter, now crushed into a million pieces by his own failure. He didn't even come close to even living up to his own promises. This is a broken heart of failure. I think this is pretty easy for us to to resonate with, if we're being honest. I mean, there's a lot of things that I think about Peter saw that I'm like, man, I can't resonate with that. I mean, here's a guy who walked on water. Here's a guy who saw dead people raised to life. Here's a guy who saw a few loaves and some fish multiplied to feed the masses. Here's a guy who hung out on a mountain with Moses and Elijah and saw Jesus' face transfigured before him. Anybody else done those things in this room? Yeah, right? Those are not normative, yet here he is. I don't even know him. Why do you think he failed? Well, I think there's a few things we can draw from the passage uh, to see maybe why he failed. Number one, because of Satan's efforts, right? We just saw last week that Satan was after Peter. We saw that in verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. All right, number two, Peter didn't heed the warnings of Jesus. Peter was warned by Jesus, but instead... Peter's boasting of his own strength, right? He thought, probably, that Jesus' warnings were meant for somebody else. Not possibly me, I'm Peter. He failed because of his pride. I mean, we just had an argument about who's the greatest in the kingdom, who's going to basically be next to Jesus. I mean, wouldn't he and John at least be near the top of the list from all that they've seen and done? He failed because of his own prayerlessness. Jesus asked him multiple times, pray that you would not enter into temptation. He failed because of exhaustion. He's been up for hours. He's tired. More than anything, he failed because he feared the approval of the girl and the nameless guys over the approval of Jesus. Jesus. Whoever's approval you want, whether it's a person, whether it's a parent, whether it's a crowd, a group, a society um, group or something, you will fear them and you will obey them. You will do the things necessary to fit in to that group. That's, That's how fear works. That's how approval works. See, Peter fails for a host of reasons and none of them are we immune from. I mean. Is there any hope for Peter? Is there hope for any of us who've crumbled under the public eye or pressure from a group of people or maybe a family member or a friend? You know, maybe at one point in a church service like this or when you're praying at home alone or maybe you went off to camp, right? And you have those really secure moments where you can make big, bold promises for God. I'm going to change. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And then we leave and we face some threat in our eyes that causes us to not want to associate with Jesus at all. If you've done that, I imagine we all have. Where's the hope? Well, if you remember last week, um, what does Jesus say to Peter? I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail, but when you have turned again. That, that's, a, that's a word of repentance. When you've turned again. Strengthen your brothers, strengthen your brothers when you turn back, strengthen your brothers, right so we 're getting a window here of, of what might happen in peter 's life because of jesus prayers for him, and we get that window played out for us in in john chapter twenty one john chapter twenty one this is an amazing scene i 'm sure many of you are familiar with it where peter, this is after the resurrection. Peter's out in a boat, he's fishing, they're having a bad day of fishing, and Jesus, who doesn't even fish from what I know, says, Hey, just throw your nets on the other side. So they do. The nets are so filled with fish, they're almost breaking. Peter looks and goes, That's Jesus. They're a hundred yards from the shore. And he goes, I can't wait. So he puts his cloak on. I don't know why he did that. But then he swims a hundred yards to Jesus. And he gets to shore and he sees Jesus. And what does Jesus have set up for him? It's a fire. this is just right after this scene. And you know how senses work, right? You hear a song, you're transported back in time. You smell something, right? You're immediately transported. I don't even wear cologne anymore. My favorite cologne, though, I won't even tell you what it was, but I used to have this favorite cologne, and then we got pregnant with our firstborn, and my wife was like, that's the grossest smelling thing in the world now. So I still have the bottle of cologne, and once in a while I'll get it out and she'll, like, gag. You know, so it's pretty amazing. It just transports you back into time, right? Our senses do this to us, don't they? Right? Just certain feelings. So here's a fire set up, and here's what it says in John 21. should be on the screen. Jesus said to Peter after breakfast, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. You can read, strengthen your brothers. And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. I mean, he knows, Jesus heard those, I mean, he knows everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep, right? Strengthen your brothers. Truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself, walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, He said to him, follow me. This is restorative grace. So there are many differences between Judas and Peter. There are many. But one of the biggest ones is that Judas repented in the wrong direction. Judas felt convicted about what he did after this, but where did he repent? How did he repent? He returned to the people who gave him the money to try to give the money back. He doesn't run to Jesus. He runs to the people who gave him the money and he tries to give it back. Where does Peter run? Towards Jesus. He puts a cloak on even and swims, right? He runs to Jesus. Judas doesn't run to Jesus. He runs back to the people. He repents to the people that helped him arrest Jesus. And it makes me wonder always, what if Judas repented in the right direction? See, we can wrong God and we can repent in the wrong direction. You can feel bad about the exchanges that you make. You can feel bad about the denials and the ways that you distance yourself from Jesus to fit into another group or within a relationship. But if all you feel after that is man, I'm just going to cry, I'm going to weep, and I'm going to beat myself up, or I'm going to give this thing back, or I'm going to do better the next time, or I'm going to do more good than bad from now going forward. That's repenting in the wrong direction. Jesus says, turn again. Return to me. That's how Peter's restored. Peter doesn't do anything to receive this sort of treatment from Jesus. That's what repentance is. It's meeting him at the charcoal fire in the knowledge of his love for you, professing your love for him. See, and this, this, this kind of receiving of grace will change your life. I mean, because this is what transforms Peter, right? He's a completely different person, isn't he? Because the one before a few people den- who denied Jesus is gonna be the one in a matter of days that's gonna stand before hostile crowds and preach Jesus crucified. Right? The, the one who swung a sword is going to be one who won't fear the sword. But we're told through history that he is going to be crucified upside down. Jesus just said that's the kind of death you're going to die to glorify God. How can this be? How can you come go from a denier to maybe even leaving a building like this tonight and going and never denying him again? Well, one big reason, for Peter at least, is that after Jesus ascended, God sent the Holy Spirit. And so Peter didn't just have Jesus standing beside him the rest of his days, he had the spirit living inside him. And if you've repented and you've run to Jesus in that repentance and you've placed your faith in him, God says that he sends the spirit into your life. I think too, Peter had a long last. He'd finally been broken of his pride finally been broken of his self-sufficiency. I mean, if you just follow Peter throughout the Gospels, the the picture is of someone who's quick to speak and slow to listen. He's always trying to make sure he's ahead of other people. He's self-assured. I mean, Jesus had prodded him all along, but now finally Peter's hit rock bottom. He has tasted the depths of failure. I mean, Peter, the rock, has been broken. But that brokenness wasn't the end of Peter. It was actually the doorway for Peter. He was being refined, not destroyed. This was a moment of growth. And that's exactly what can be true of you in your own failure. Even massive failure doesn't have to be the end when Jesus is a part of the equation. I mean, mean, have you faced tears of failure? Have you failed to such an extent that you would find yourself even weeping bitterly? know that you are not excluded from the grace of God, but it's in that place where you recognize your failure and you turn to Jesus. It's then when you finally can receive it. I mean, I love how one author writes how grace is like water and that it always flows to the lowest part. You you could put water in a a room and you could find out where the lowest part of that room is because it'll flow to the lowest part. Grace is the same. Grace, like water, flows to the lowest part. When you're at the bottom, that's when you can finally actually receive grace. So Judas didn't want to be isolated from material comfort, so he exchanged. Peter didn't want to be isolated from the crowd, so he denied. So my question is, what do you think will ultimately cause you to leave here and walk through this world and face any pressure cooker for the sake of Jesus. But in that pressure cooker, you would sit there and say, not just I want to remain faithful to him or that you will remain faithful to him, but actually you want to remain faithful to him. Well, what would cause you to live that way? Well, I'll tell you what, it's not by saying, I will never do it again. Like if we leave this room today and we're like, I'm not exchanging Jesus for other stuff in this world. I'm never going to deny Jesus. That's not how this works. We just saw that's how Peter failed. I mean, that, that'd be the equivalent of seeing a spider web in your house and cleaning the cobwebs and saying, We're good now. Right? Just clenching your fist and gritting your teeth. I'm not gonna do it anymore. Because how did the spider web get there? Spider, right? If you don't want the web, you gotta kill the spider, right? The webs are just gonna keep being woven. Right? We understand that. So it's not by by wiping away the web. The, the only way to squash the spider is by knowing and actually believing that the greatest treasure, the greatest approval, the greatest love is something that you already possess in Jesus. Even though you've exchanged Jesus for so many other things, you see how Jesus exchanged his life for you. It's knowing that although you denied him, he was denied his request of there being another way to drain the cup so that you would not be denied before the Father. I mean, do you see this? Jesus experienced the epitome of the word alone so that you could never be. It's that knowledge living in your heart that will transform you like Peter. It's not your promises. It's not your strength. It's not your pride. It's living in the gracious love of Jesus. See, Judas, again, he didn't want to be isolated from material comfort, so he exchanged. Peter didn't want to be isolated from the crowd, so he denied. But God chose not to be isolated from his people He chose not to be isolated from you. So Jesus came and endured isolation that we would never be. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you tonight and we stare at the acts that you went through of rejection and betrayal and denial. And even in the face of that evil, Lord, you've healed, you've remained faithful. Lord Jesus, there is no one like you. And we're so grateful for your grace in our life and I just pray for anybody here who feels like they're at the bottom, or maybe they have a little ways more to fall, I don't know, Lord, but I just pray that you would meet them where they are, that we would experience your grace in our life, that it would soften, our hearts to receive your love for us in such a way, Lord, that we would live um, just faithful to you in this world. You transform our lives through your gospel. We pray that even as we take communion, or tonight, that, that we would um, be so moved and impacted by how you were forsaken, Lord, knowing that we will never be forsaken. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.